John chapter 4. This will be the last of the lessons that I'll look at, specifically Jesus' conversation um, with the woman at the well. I'm thinking I may go next to Nicodemus because I really like to deal with that as well, that, that conversation. And then I want to transition into some of the conversations that God's people had after Jesus had left the planet and given them the assignment in Matthew chapter 28 to teach what he had commanded. And how, how do we carry out those conversations? I'm not going to say that those conversations are more applicable to you and I, because certainly Jesus and what he says is, is primary. But they are a little more real in the sense that we, um, we can see individuals now who have been trained by Jesus to do what Jesus does. And we have been trained by the apostles to do what Jesus does. And so we are, you know, we're kind of the, as we continue the, the progress, if you will, the generational progress of conversational Christianity, we begin to see how this is going to play out. And we'll see that in future lessons. But uh, today I, I want to shut down with John chapter 4. Not that there aren't many other pa uh, applications that could be made. There are. But as we look at somewhat of the conclusions that are going to be drawn here, I think it's important for us to recognize the key word that we're going to emphasize today is results. We've had so far four key words, this being our fourth. The first was Jesus was aware of the context. The second was that he took initiative to initiate the conversation with the woman at the well. Then last time we looked at hope and how that all of the things that he talked about dealt with that idea of futuristic, it's going to be good, all et cetera, et cetera. When, this morning, I'd just like for you to see the results of, of that. And in the results, I think you'll begin to understand, again, another principle that we need to apply to our own conversational Christianity. So if you want to stay with me for where I'm at, uh, I'm going to go back to verse 27. And uh, then we're going to read on further down and we'll make these points and, and the lesson will be yours. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but that no one said uh, anything to him. Nobody said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and uh, they uh, were coming to him. So the introductory context here, as you are fully aware, but the disciples return about the same time she leaves. And they're swapping spots, as it were. Nobody among Jesus' disciples has the courage to ask what in the world. And so they just keep their mouth shut. But uh, the woman, she goes off and she, she makes this statement, which is, it's, there's some hyperbole with regards to this statement. In other words, it, it's, it's a statement that says more, it's, it's a, how do you say that, extreme terminologies uh, that is used for emphasis. When she makes this statement that he told me everything that I ever did. Clearly, Jesus didn't do that because that would have taken them, you know, forever for her to, you know, for Jesus to recount every little activity that she ever did ever since she was born. That's not what she's even saying. What she is saying, however, and again, hyperbole is being used here. And for the purpose of emphasis is she's saying, he said, he told me without ever meeting me, he told me everything that was of significance in my life. That's why he is called earlier on by her the, a prophet. I can see you're a prophet. And so he had that credibility uh, uh, with her. But in that statement, that selling statement, if you will, to her friends back at the, at, uh, in the town, she is so convincing 
that many of them are going to come out and they're going to sit at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is going to teach them and we're going to see at the conclusion of the passage that many are going to believe on Jesus. So it's a pretty powerful testimony that she makes. And it's also an illustration of her taking the conversation that Jesus had given, initiated, and now she takes the conversation and she passes it along to other people, which is our job as well. As we move into verse 31, we're going to see some things here that I think are very, very important with regards to today's lesson, and that is results. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, uh, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to, to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, yet there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is, wa is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. At that point, there is this statement of instruction to, to, the, to the followers of Christ that you might see it as somewhat harsh, I do, and yet, I don't know that that was necessarily the intent, because I think that the harshness of this statement is because of their blindness to the situation. It's not that Jesus was trying necessarily to be harsh, as much as he was saying, how do you guys even miss this? Come back and notice that he says, already, or he says, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are already white unto harvest. It's like Jesus is saying, how can you guys be with me and miss this? This lady and I have had a conversation, and no doubt, although it's not specific, as they lift their eyes up to the fields around about them, they probably are seeing the crowd coming out of the town, coming toward Jesus. And Jesus is no doubt beckoning in that direction, look, here's the real harvest. How do you miss this? This is the real harvest. My first point for you is that we need to recognize that the harvest is already ready. It has been ever since the time of Christ. Since Peter presented that sermon on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 folks were baptized into Christ. The church begins, and we're off and running from that day, and I think I could say even prior to that. But from that day, we can say with assurance, the harvest is ready. In fact, you might could actually define our time period that we live in. We often call it the church age, and that's appropriate. But you might call it the harvest age. That's our purpose. That's what it's about. We are about harvesting. We are about bringing in that which has already been prepared because of the gospel of Christ has been presented to the world, etc. We are now in the harvest mode, which is interesting that we would present this lesson at a time of the year when we are seeing all the combines and all the harvesting that's going on around about us. It's like there's been so much preparation. I've talked to farmer friends throughout the last several months about, you know, whether we need rain, we don't need rain, all of those kinds of things. They've done so much to get to this point. And you've got to appreciate that. And I'm going to make a point about them here, here in just a moment. But that's not us. We're at the harvest stage. And I think that the point that Jesus is making here that you and I need to take home is that we need to recognize that the results are ready. Our job is simply to make sure that we capitalize upon the harvest age that we are presently in. 
As you continue reading, though, he, he's going to go on to say, verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages, said to verse 37. For here the saying hold true, holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered their labor. I can't be certain as to all that Jesus is talking about here, but certainly one of the things I think we could conclude is that you have the Old Testament age, the Jewish period from the time of Abraham and his covenant with God, all the way through until the Messiah comes and now has established his church, or is going to establish his church. All of that time period are described, I think, within this text as being individuals who were sowing. They were setting the stage. They were preparing the soil. They were getting everything ready, all of those kind of things. And so it's kind of like the last several months that you've had farmer friends, and I have as well, who've talked to you about needing rain, not needing rain, whatever it may be, and all the work that you've seen that they have done on preparing their equipment, et cetera, et cetera, and they've watched the, the, the plants grow, et cetera. But we're now into that point where it's time. Let's go see how the field did. And we're into the harvest period. Now, I don't want you to necessarily see a contradiction here because it is true that we are also described as the sower. And the sower goes forth to sow, okay? And you got all the various soils, etc. And so I'm not suggesting that there isn't a sowing process to take place. But what I am saying is that the sowing process that we are doing is actually on the tail end of all the work that has been previously done by all the other spiritual farmers ahead of us. And some of them are individuals, elderly individuals, that are no longer sitting in these pews. They've gone on to be with the Father. But you know their names, and you've thought about the various ways that they've encouraged you. You're still faithful, perhaps, because of that name, or this name, or that person. Well, they were planting seeds in your life, etc. So we, we also are planting seeds. There's no doubt about that. But the actual tilling of the soil, if you will, the foundational work, was done by those long prior before you and I. And I think that you could associate them again with the Old Testament saints. Individuals of the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, who went forth in faith, doing what God wanted them to, to establish a foundation that you and I now are able to capitalize on. Let me see if I can describe it this way, and then we'll go into our third point. The scriptures often refer to the Old Testament period, you know, kind of a shadow of things to come. The types and the anti-types, for those of you who have done deep study in Bible. When you realize what's happening there, you understand that there are folks, even scripture refers to it, those who long to look into these things. People like David, who could hear the prophetic lines of things that were coming to bear, perhaps even realize that his lineage would somehow last through eternity. But how does that even work? And he had those questions in his mind, probably never ever figuring it out that it was going to be fulfilled through Jesus, that through Jesus, the Christ that comes through his line, his lineage, that my lineage, David would say, would last forever through Jesus. That's going to happen, although David probably doesn't realize how it's going to happen, but that's the point. David was setting the stage. He was tilling the soil. He was the, the one who worked the soil first as he sets the stage for the Christ to come. 
But have you ever thought about you and I and the advantages that we have with regards to being on this side of the cross? You know, if you think of the timeline of human history, and you put the cross smack dab in the middle, and you recognize there was a lot of history that happened before the cross. And you see all that, that goes on before the cross to prepare for the coming of Jesus, etc., etc. That's all very important. But all of those people prior to that, again, read, read Hebrews chapter 11. All of those folks, they looked as if it were a shadow. They didn't really get it. They didn't understand how it was going to play out. How that God would bring the Messiah. How that the throne of David would, would last forever. How does that even work? They were, they had all, but now you and I on this side of the cross, it's no longer a mystery. Because we live in it. We look over our shoulders and we see the prophetic word and we, we recognize that when the prophetic word was given, they had questions, they had doubts, they didn't know what in the world they were even saying, some of them, as far as really understanding how this would play out. But you and I aren't in that position. We look over our shoulder and we see not only the prophecy being made, we see it being fulfilled. We live in such an advantaged time. That's why, back to our text, Jesus, I think, can say to us, right now, present tense, we are in the harvest because we are in the fullness of time, if you will, because, because the Jesus has come. Now, my second point, results are shared, and it's important for us to recognize that. Again, back to what I said without giving you my point earlier, forgive me. He said, I sent you to reap, verse 38, that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and have entered into, you have entered into their labor. In other words, you're building upon the foundation of other people. And it's generational, it's the way it's always been intended to be. But specifically when you consider the foundation of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the great saints of the Old Testament and how that you and I are building upon what they, they longed to have clarity. They wanted to know what it really meant. They didn't ever get it, but they, they laid a foundation. And now you and I come along and we take full advantage of that foundation. And so we share with them, we share with them in the glories of the results. I saw this on social media. It probably makes a good illustration. It's two slides, basically, side by side. In the first slide, you've got a father and a son planting a tree. It's just a little sapling, just a little, little tiny tree. In the second slide... You have a father and the son, but now the tree has grown and there's big branches and there's a swing hanging from one of the branches. And the father is pushing the little boy on the swing. And he is thinking to himself, thanks dad for helping me plant this tree. So in the second slide, the father is now the little boy in the first slide. He has grown along with the tree until the tree is now at a point where he can put a swing in the tree and swing his own son on the tree that his dad helped him to plant. That's kind of the pace of history for you and I. We are the second slide. We are the ones who are taking full advantage of the full-grown tree. In the first slide, that was the Abrahams, the Davids of the past. And they were planting the tree and it was bringing things to a point but they never really got to see. The dad in the first slide never saw the tree full grown. But the dad in the second slide, who was the child in the first slide, he sees it full grown. We are part of the harvest. But my question is, 
do we truly share as we should? Do you ever thank God for Abraham? I do. Thank God for Sarah. Thank God for Jacob and all the toils and the we preached that series not long ago, you remember? And all the growing up years that he had to go through. The Davids. The Jeremiahs who get thrown into a pit for speaking the truth. You ever thank God for You would not be here if it hadn't been for the Abrahams and the Davids and the Sarahs and the Jeremiahs and the Isaiahs. And the, we got to have those people. They are the foundation of what brings about what you and I now have. A full-grown tree where we can fully appreciate the harvest. And so, first of all, understand that the results are ready. And number two, understand that the results are shared with those who have gone prior, been before us. Then you don't even have to go all the way back to Abraham. Go to those folks who I've told you about who sat in these pews in years gone by and encouraged you. And the reason you're faithful today is because of the memories that you have of some of those individuals. Praise God for those people. Then number three. Results are personal, very, very personal. And this is probably the big one of the lesson. If you're going to take anything from it, please make sure that you get this one. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me uh, all that I ever did. So that, that's the testimony. He told me everything I ever did and they believed. Well, he must be the Christ. So that's big, but that's not the end of the story. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Now watch verse 42. This is huge. They said to the woman, she's the one who gives the story originally. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. That is ultimately the end game for every piece of conversational Christianity. Ultimately, we want to get the person to a place where they have a relationship with Jesus. I don't think that they were in any way trying to downplay the significance of the woman's testimony. They would have never come out of the town if it hadn't been for the woman. So God be praised for that woman at the well. But they are essentially saying, we have moved beyond having a faith that's based upon your testimony we have moved to a place where we now have a faith that's based upon our own personal study and relationship with the Savior. That's where we got to get people. It's why the room is mostly empty today. is because we have failed in recognizing the need to make sure that our children and our grandchildren understand that they've got to move beyond Papa's faith. My little guy, Judah, who I love with all of my heart, seven years old, and I appreciate him. But boy, I can, I can say the moon is blue. And he'd look up to see if it's not blue because, you know, Papa says it. It just has to be. But there's coming a time rapidly, and it's, it's coming quick, that Judah is going to begin to make sure that he begins to establish his own value system. And he's going to be an individual who recognizes truth from hyperbole maybe, or, or exaggeration, or even just a bold-faced lie. He's going to have to begin to make those, those decisions on his own. But in a, I'm not trying to pick on us necessarily, although if it applies, put the foot on, you know, put, your, put, it, put it where it needs to be with regards to application. But I look at our fellowship. We are hemorrhaging young people. And the reason 
is because we have taught them a lot of stuff. They got a lot of facts, but they don't have a relationship. Now, I'm not suggesting, I'm not going down this path of liberalism that often uh, says we got to all be all warm and fuzzy and have this kind of relationship with Jesus where he's my best buddy. I think you got to be careful with that. That sounds almost blasphemous to me. But I am saying this, that a child has got to be raised to a point where they take it on as their own faith. If you don't get them there, that it's their own faith, then they're going to live the rest of their years on a borrowed faith and no one goes to heaven on a borrowed faith. They have to have a personal relationship with the Savior. And so coming back to our text, notice what happens here. Jesus has a powerful conversation with the woman. She's so impressed, she calls him a prophet, goes back into town. She begins to evangelize through conversation. You're not going to believe this guy. He told me everything I've ever done. And he, she is so impressed, impressive in the way that she presents her, her message that the, the folks say, we, we got, well, I believe, let's go find the Christ. Let's go find the Savior. And they come out and they talk with the Savior. And they're even more impressed at that point. To the point that they say, you know what? I appreciate you inviting me out here to this conversation with the Savior. But I'll be honest with you, since I've arrived, I've discovered something. It's not because of you, dear woman at the well. It's because of him. We have to get our people, and whoever they be, from your child to your grandchild to the person you sit next to at Walmart or in the waiting room at the hospital, wherever it is, whoever you're dealing with, the ultimate goal is to get them to a point where you are insignificant to the conversation anymore. You are working yourself out of a job. That's the goal. Get yourself to a place where they are so enamored, so in love, so passionate about Jesus, they don't need you. They go straight to Jesus. If we can get people to that point, the church will not only grow again, but we'll have a spiritual strength that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. We've got to get ourselves into a position where we work ourselves out of a job. Take them to Jesus. Remember the folks who showed up said we would see Jesus? We are the in-betweens. I know him. Sure, I can get you an audience. But once they're in the audience with the Savior, think about the joy, the results of being able to step into the darkness, step, if you will, into the shadows, step aside and just let them be with the Lord. And they have their own personal relationship with Jesus. That'll last. If we can get our children and our grandchildren into that kind of position, they won't walk away. Because they've been with Jesus. And so by way of review then, the word is results. Remember, he says the harvest is ready. So the results are ready right now. And that's for you and I, by the way. It's time to get busy because they're ready. Number two, results are shared with those who have gone before us. And then number three, results are very, very personal. And they got to get to that level if it's true results. Get to a level where it's no longer me telling you about Jesus. It's you sitting in the presence of Jesus talking to him personally. We can get our folks there. The stability of the church, the effectiveness of the church will be overwhelming. Results. Powerful, powerful 
passage in John chapter 4. And I've only touched on a few of the little things here as far as Jesus setting the, the pace to true Christian conversation. I hope that you, you've benefited from it.